a, 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 the wool color of nobility. Purple was, was the color of nobility. So maybe that's why they, they were in existence because this particular wool, for whatever reason, it grew there, uh, it grew in the sheep there, and it was dyed there, and it was manufactured there for nobility. But anyway, that's, that's kind of what we came up with for, for the city of Colossae. Uh, we, we pointed out last week that there was just a couple of things in the letter that we could expect to find. Uh, one of the things that seemed to be the problem was uh, because it was a, a pagan city, there was lots and lots of idols. We kind of alluded to some of those last week. And there was a fear, there was a fear uh, of Paul when he wrote the letter that, that the folks there in Colossae might be drawn, being drawn back to that pagan worship, to that idol worship. There was, there was some thought of that. We'll see some of those uh, allusions to that. Uh, references to that in the letter as we take a look at the letter together. <clears throat> but he also, there was a problem, Paul was concerned about false philosophy, false teaching um, there uh, that was attacking the church there in Colossae. <clears throat> and there were those who were uh, having, the, having the members there, the saints, if you will, there in Colossae, wanted, wanting them to revert back to Jewish rituals. And there was another faction that was wanting them to include in their worship, angel worship. And uh, even there was a group that would have the, 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 the Christians there believe that uh, abusing your body, cutting your body, uh, was, was actually a way of, of worship or showing a religion to some, some one, perhaps gods there, the pagan gods. So... All of these things together is what caused Paul to write this letter. One of the things we, we talked about last week was the fact that Paul had not been to Colossae. It's, it's, it's not likely that Paul was involved in the starting of the church there at Colossae. And, and we get that by looking at a couple of verses. In chapter 2, uh, for instance, it says, For I want you to know, verse 1, for I want you to know that uh, what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So, so the, my question is, is how did Paul even know about the church in Colossae? I mean, if he had not been there, he had never been there, wasn't, wasn't on his missionary journeys, and yet here he is in prison in Rome, and this is one of the prison epistles he writes. In verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. You remember back in the book of Philippians, uh, it started off, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, the bondservants of Jesus Christ. So this is Paul in prison writing this letter. But since he didn't start the church there, how, how did he know about the problems there? Well, I think the answer is found to that in, in chapter 1. Down, look, if you will, at verse, um, verse well, let's look at verse 6. Well, maybe we should back up just a little bit. Well, uh, anyway, it says in verse 7, As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear brother, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. So, Paul learned about the church in Colossae and what's going on in Colossae while he's in Roman prison from Epaphras. 
Epaphras brought him this report. He told him about the church there in Colossae. And he told him about, I'm sure, about some of the problems they were having, which uh, Paul would sit down and write this letter now to the church there so he would have a clear understanding, uh, or they would have a clear understanding of how he felt, being an apostle, how, how God would want some things that God would want them to know in this letter. So uh, beginning in chapter 1, verse, verse 1, we've already read that verse, but verse 2 says it's to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. So he's writing to the church. He's writing to fellow Christians there. And he says, I've got these things to say to you. And so when you start to look at it, in verses 3 through 8, we see Paul's thanksgiving for the Colossians. So for the first few verses, he's just thanking God for the Colossians themselves and for the good that they're doing. And we'll read those verses together. Uh, the last part of verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and more than likely that was from Epaphras, and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you and is also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit. It is also among you since the day you heard it and knew the grace of God in truth. And then verse 7, as we read, as you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who has also declared to us your love of the Spirit, your love in the Spirit. So he's, it, Paul is thanking God for the saints there in Colossae, and he's, he's thanking them because of the word that Epaphras has brought, telling him about the saints there, about how they love each other, and how they love those outside of the church, and how their presence is known by those in the community. And so Epaphras is telling Paul all these things, and he's bringing that to him. So, so we see that prayer of thanks. Uh, he talks about their faith. He talks about their love. But he also talks about their hope of heaven in verse 5 there. He says, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. It, the, the saints there in Colossae had the same hope that you and I have today. That was the hope of an eternal home with God if we are faithful unto death. So the saints there had heard that. They, they latched on to those teachings. They... They made it a part of their life. They, they, they obeyed the truth. They, they became the church there in Colossae. And they were doing the best that they could to live a Christian life and function as a church there in Colossae. So um, he says in verse 6, he says, which has come to you as it has also in all the world. You know, Paul in this, in this letter, in this letter, he, ta he points out the fact that the gospel uh, has now been preached to all of the known world. And I, I just think that's interesting. When you go back and look at the, uh, the dispersion of the gospel from Jerusalem and, and how the apostles were gathered there when they received the gospel, they started preaching the gospel, Acts chapter 2, but then how they are literally driven away from Jerusalem, but they went out into Judea, Samaria, into the uttermost parts of the world, preaching and teaching the gospel. They didn't go quietly. They didn't go quietly. 
they went about spreading the good, the good news, the gospel that they had received initially in Acts chapter 2 when the church was established. And so Paul says it has gotten this same truth. This same truth has reached Colossae. The saints there have heard, the, the, the people there have heard it, obeyed it, and became saints, became brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul was congratulating them. He was thanking God for their presence there. Okay, and, but not only that, he says, as is bringing forth and is bringing forth fruit. So the word that they heard that converted them, Paul says it's continuing to be preached, it's continuing to be taught, and you know what? People are believing it, and people are obeying it. It's bringing forth fruit, and that's exactly what it should do even today. In the sense that we live in today, our, our goal is to continue to spread the truth, to spread the gospel to those round about us. We do that many different ways. We do it through our support of missionaries in India, our support of the truth in the Philippines, uh, the work that we did in the Bahamas. We do it through, um, uh, through the, the radio programs we support, um, and we do it through our evangelism program to get the truth out to those living around us so that more, more people will come to know our Jesus. More people will come to know the salvation he has promised the world. So the first, first, first three verses there, he talks about that hope, that fruit um, uh, th that was resulting from their faith, their faith which was becoming evident in the community in which they lived. And then he talks about Epaphras' report, about what he had heard there. So um, the next thing that we see in the letter in verses 9 through 14 is Paul's prayer for the Colossians. So not only does Paul offer thanks for them and for the work that they've been doing, he offers now a prayer for them themselves. Look at verse 9 through 14 together. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power for all patience and, all, and, and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his Son, of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So you go back and start to look at what, what was Paul praying for? Well, he was praying, first off, that the Lord would continue to strengthen them. Well, verse 9 says, he says, since we've heard of you, we've not ceased to pray for you, and we're praying that you be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. He's praying for strength for the saints there. He's praying for uh, the word to be continued to be preached and for them to obey the truth uh, continue to obey the truth and to stay with the truth and to take that truth and share it with their neighbors. So he wants God to bless that church just like he wants God. We want God to bless this church here at Graber Road. And how would we want God to bless us? Well, with good teachers, with the solid teaching of his word, uh, with, the, with the opportunity that we have to glorify him, the Father, and to continue to put our faith and trust in Jesus and the promise. So all these things that make us the church. Paul is praying for that church in Colossae there, 
that we should be praying for those same things for us. So he wants them to have knowledge, knowledge and, and spiritual wisdom. Again, that's what makes a person's faith grow, does it not? Increased knowledge, increased wisdom helps us to have a stronger faith. And that stronger faith is going to help us to do better the job that we're called to do. He says that the, the Christian walk, it, the Christian walk is the way, of, in other words, it's not just the time that they were together in, in the church building, but it's, the, it's, a, it's a way of life. It's a way of life. It's a way of living from Monday, uh, from Sunday, the first day of the week, to Saturday. And, and it's a walk that people can see in you, something different, a uniqueness uh, that sets you apart from the world, that makes people look at you and say, Hey, what is it that this person has? Uh, and there's something about them. It's about the way that they talk. It's about the way that they, 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 they share, the way they, they care for other people. And all these things are obvious. And that, that's the same walk that we should be engaged in today. Do people see a difference in our lives by the life that we live when they see us? Are we a better neighbor than the average Joe? who's not a member of the church, we should be. Were we employed? Are, are we better workers than the average employee at that work because of our Christian walk and our Christian talk? We should be. We should stand apart. We should be different. People should look at us and say there's something, something about that person that makes them different than other people, and that's what we should strive for. Um... He points out in verse 14, he says, the, 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 the reason they can live this kind of a life, they can have this kind of a walk, is because they are a group of people who have been forgiven. They have been forgiven. And, and that's what we should be thankful for today, too, the fact that we have been forgiven. We're never going to be perfect. We're never going to do everything right. We're always going to have weaknesses, but we are a forgiven people are forgiven people he pointed that out in whom we have this redemption and that comes to us through the blood of Jesus uh, not only that redemption but that forgiveness of sin and we know as God's children that that blood will continue continue to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we remain faithful and if we call upon him and we repent if we, when we make a mistake, when we fall short, if we would just repent of those things, that that blood that Jesus shed on the cross will continue to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In, in the next few verses, he, we find a, a description of the greatness of Christ Jesus himself. So Paul, <clears throat> in writing this letter to Colossians, he says, let me tell you a, a little bit more about the Savior that you have. Uh, they, he, they have no doubt learned enough about Jesus to know how to be saved, how to become Christians. They've learned that. But Paul says, I want to tell you just exactly how great this Savior is. And he starts doing that in, in, uh, in the next few verses there. Verse 15, he says, he, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. Uh, I think that word image is a word that we get the word icon from. Icon. 
We talk about icons on our computers and stuff and how it represents something that Jesus himself is the image of that God, of the God who created the world, the God that we serve. And he says he's the firstborn of all creation. Th does that mean that Jesus was the very first one born? That, that doesn't always mean that. Whenever we read the word firstborn, sometimes it does reference the oldest child, the firstborn of that family. But it also could very well mean the first one born never to die. Never to die. And that would be Jesus. You know, he was never going to die once he, he suffered for us on, on, in this world. And, and it says, so he is the image of that invisible God. In John chapter 1 and verse 1, if you were to th turn back to that, uh, the, uh, the gospel of John in chapter 1 verse 1 we, we find this very interesting reading talking about Jesus that says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus was not just an image of God. He was God on earth when he was here with us. He was with mankind. But he took on human attributes so that he could know the sorrow and suffering that mankind goes through. He would know... Uh, disappointment, but at the same time, he was God. He was God here with us, serving here us. <clears throat> so in verse 16, it says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. So who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus you serve? Well, he's the creator of the world. He was with God when the world was spoken into existence. He was with God when the plan of redemption was first thought of. He was with God. He was part of the Godhead. And he said, that's the Jesus that we serve. So he says that he's, uh, over, he's over thrones and dominions or principalities or powers, all things that were created through him and for him. So when, whenever we think about who rules this world, okay, it says right there that Jesus is the ruler of this world. He's, he's over all powers. He's over all dominions. Jesus is over all. He created everything. He is over all. And, she, and Paul says, that's the, that's the Jesus you obeyed. That's the Jesus we serve. In verse 17, he says, And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. What did John say? In John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Paul, the, the, uh, John would say, From the very beginning of time, Jesus was with God. And through him all things were made. All things were created through Jesus himself. He was there when the world was spoken into existence. On that six days of creation, Jesus was there with his Father creating those things. He says, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist, and he is the head of the body of the church. Now, Paul's going to kind of hone in now on a little bit what this, what this whole letter to Colossians is about. Because what the focus of the letter, of the Colossian letter is, is to show Christ of the church, or Christ is the head of the church. 
So he starts to talk about that even in this verse. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence, that there is nothing ahead of him. He's first in all things. But as the head of the church, when you stop and think about, well, what was it that Jesus wanted the church to accomplish in this world? All we have to do is look to Jesus, and he's going to tell us. He's going to tell us how we should behave. In fact, he even tells us in his word how we should behave in the household of God. He, should, he tells us what he expects of us in the form of worship, how we are to assemble with the saints on the first day of the week and remember his death, burial, and resurrection around the table on the first day of the week. See, he, he, he created the church. He is over the church. He gets to make all the rules. He gets to make all the rules. This, this is his word. And as, as I said in my prayer, if we would just come to understand that our lives on this world, in this world today, would be so much better every day if we would just keep in mind that, and do what Jesus wants us to do. B- because he's the giver of all good gifts, right? He doesn't want anything bad for his children or for his church. He wants good things. So we create, it's interesting sometimes I think about, we create a lot of our own problems, uh, sometimes because of disobedience. Because we don't do what we know we should do sometimes. We're just creating problems for ourselves. So he's the head of the body of the church, who's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Verse 19 says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. That all the powers of God are seen in Christ Jesus himself, the Son. When he was here on this earth, walking on this world as a man, he was still God. He could perform miracles. He did. He, he taught the truth. He, he brought uh, the truth to men. He br- taught the apostles and brought them to the point that they needed to be so that whenever he would depart from this world and go back to his father, they would take over, uh, directed by the Holy Spirit, and they would bring the truth to the world that needed him so desperately, so badly. So he says this, and so Paul is saying, this is the, this is the Jesus you serve. This is the Jesus we know and we should come to know. So <clears throat> creator of all things, one who holds all, he holds all things together. In verse 17, uh, he, he, he is before all things, and in him all things consist. It, it all belongs to Jesus. It all belongs to him. Verse 18, uh, we've already talked about, uh, and says in verse 20, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. We start to see the power, the power of that blood on the cross of Calvary. Whenever Jesus shed his blood, it was, it was, we read throughout the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, that the blood of bulls and goats never was able to take away sin. It was required for the, sacri- for the sacrifices, but it was not able to remove sin. But whenever Jesus bled upon the cross of Calvary, that blood, that precious blood was able to remove sins from mankind. And it was the purchase price of the church, and it was the plan, uh, for the plan of redemption. 
All, all of that was going to hinge and on the, that sacrifice that Jesus made for each one of us on the cross of Calvary. Verse 21 says, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. So what did he do? He's purchased us back, right? With that sacrifice on the cross, with obedience to his will and a belief in him, he has purchased us back from a world of sin, a world of darkness, into a world of light, and into the church where all these blessings are available to us. He said in verse 21, he says, and you were once alienated. When was that? When were we enemies to the cross? When we were without Christ. Before we became into the kingdom, we were enemies. How could we not be, right? If we didn't know Christ and didn't know anything about his sacrifice and we hadn't obeyed Christ and hadn't followed his word, we're enemies of the cross and alienated. Remember, and I think, I'll never forget this, this is, I don't guess as long as I live, Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. And if you ever heard Troy preach a sermon, you probably heard him talk about Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. And what, what, what Isaiah says in that chapter is that our sins have separated us from God. You see, when, before we came to know Christ, we were alienated, but we can also be alienated again even after we become Christians by not serving him. If we choose a life of sin and we turn away from God, then we've alienated ourselves from that blood of Jesus that's able to cleanse us each and every one. So he says, you were once alienated, you were, you were, you were, you were um, enemies in your mind by, by, by the wicked works that we did, yet now he has reconciled, he has brought us back. He has made it possible for us to have fellowship. In fact, he even says, in this uh, verse 12 of chapter 1, he calls the, the Colossian Christians partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. And you remember in the book of Philippians, he often used that phrase about them being partners with him, with, with Paul, in spreading the gospel and how they were uh, participants with him, partakers of the gospel with him. And he's referring to that same thing to the Colossian brethren here, partakers. So in other words, they, they have become a part or are becoming a part of his work. Partakers with them then. Um, in the last part of the chapter, he has a, a few things to say. In verses 21 and 22 and 23, we see Paul's assurance of reconciliation. And again, how is that possible? Only by the possible it's only possible by the blood of Jesus and, and his plan of redemption. Verses 21 through 23. Any, any thoughts or comments about that or about any of those verses we've talked about so far? There's some, there are some very powerful lessons uh, in, in this book, and I hope that we're looking for those and see how we can apply those to the lives that we live today, how that'll make us better Christians today. And... and Starting in verse 24, Paul's going to talk a little bit about his labors uh, and how that his labors are also for the Colossian brethren there. Look at verse 24. For it says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you 
and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship for God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from the ages and from generations now has been revealed to his saints. So Paul references the fact that he indeed is a prisoner, and even as a prisoner, we know that uh, he, was, he was suffering some. Uh, we know that he's Paul the aged. He's up in age. Uh, he's receiving help from the, from the Christians in Philippi, but he's also receiving help from Epaphras here, and there's others who are coming there to serve him, but nonetheless, he, he's still suffering as, a, as, a, um, as, as someone who's locked up in prison. He's not enjoying uh, the comforts of a four-star hotel. I, I, I've said this before in, in this class, whenever I think of a Roman prison, I, I think of a, a dirty dungeon place without amenities, uh, without the proper food, uh, and that's what I think of. I, I don't think of the prisons that we have today. Well, it's no wonder some people don't want to leave them, right? You might have to go out and get a job and work for a living, but you can stay there and get three squares a day and have a nice place to sleep, be in air-conditioned comfort, and watch television. You don't even have to make license plates anymore or work in the fields. That wasn't the kind of prison that Paul was in. He was chained to a guard. He was very limited on what he could do and where he could go. Nonetheless, he spent his time concerned about who? Well, he, he was concerned about the Philippians. And now we find him being concerned about the Colossians too. And he's praying for them. He says, I rejoice. And we talked about in the book of Philippians how that whole book was about rejoicing. Every time we turned around, Paul was talking about we should rejoice in the fact that we can suffer for Jesus. And so Paul is rejoicing even here in that he can suffer for the Colossians too. He said, in my sufferings for you, and he said, I fill up my flesh what is lacking in the affliction of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. So he just recognized the fact this is the, I do this because of who you are and who you are is Christ. You belong to Christ. Just as I belong to Christ. And so Paul says, that, that I, counted a ple- I counted a pleasure. I don't, I don't count it as something I dread. But I look, to- I look forward to the fact that I can put a smile on my face and thank God for Christians such as you in Colossae. He says in verse 25, for this... For which, for which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. If you look, if you look back into the book of Acts, and we've done this before and read about Paul's conversion, in, and I think it's in Acts chapter 9 there, uh, we find out that Jesus himself said, Paul, you're going to be, you're going to be a chosen vessel to carry my word to the Gentiles, to the Gentiles. In fact, if, look, if you will, into Acts chapter 28, the, the, last, the last chapter of the book of Acts, when Paul's making his defense, when he's in prison there, um, 
and and uh, he's talking to 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 actually to the, some of the Jewish people there, and he says in verse 28, therefore let it be known to you, chapter 28, verse 28, therefore let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and and then he says, and they will hear it. Not only they will hear it, but they will welcome it because they'd been excluded from Judaism. The Gentiles have been excluded from, from, the, from the Jewish religion. But Paul says, I've been chosen a special apostle to go to the Gentiles and preach the gospel. And when he had said these things, the Jews departed in a great dispute among them. Then Paul dwelt for two years in his own rented house and received all who came to him. So what was he doing there? Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concerned the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence and no for, and no no one forbidding him. So Paul was able to freely able to preach and to teach uh, even at that point in time. So he says, I, I am the person chosen by God, an apostle out of due season. But I was chosen for a special purpose. And that purpose was to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so even though Paul didn't take the gospel to the, to the Colossians, uh, to those in Colossians, he wasn't the one who initiated the church there and started up. He's writing this letter to fortify that church, to strengthen that church, to encourage that church. And Paul says, I look forward to the fact that I can do that because that was part of what I was supposed to accomplish in this life. In verse 26, he talks about the mystery, the mystery which has been hidden from all ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to the saints. What was the mystery? What was the mystery? Uh, a, a mystery is not some, not some deep, dark secret that nobody can know. But it's, it's something that is unknown, that is going to be made known to people, all right? So what did Paul make known to people? What, didn't he make known Jesus and his salvation and his gospel and his truth? And that was, that was the mystery that had been kept from the Gentiles from, from the beginning of time. But Paul says, I was the chosen vessel to carry this message to the Gentile, to unlock the mystery, to open the mystery, to bring the salvation of Jesus to the whole world, to the whole world. He says, that was, that's what I was selected to do. Uh, verse 27, to them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, the, the mystery included letting the world know about the riches that are found in God the Father in Christianity. And the, the mysteries, uh, the, the riches found uh, in worshiping this Jesus. He says, not only do we have the opportunity to worship him, but in him we have special blessings. The church has special blessings. We have a hope. Of a, heaven, of a home in heaven. Why? All through, all through Christ Jesus, all through his blood uh, that he has told us in this chapter that it was all made possible because of his blood. So in verse 28 says, Him we preach. Who? Him. Jesus. 
We, we preach Jesus. Why? Because in him is salvation and in no other. We preach Jesus. Why? Because he's the ruler of the world. Because he's the one who paid the price to establish the church. So we preach Jesus. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his workings, which works in me mightily. Paul, Paul felt like just by preaching and teaching about Jesus that he was strengthened. That, you know, in fact, we remember reading in the last in the, in the last chapter of Philippians there, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who what? Who strengthens me. It, 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 it's, a, it's a blessing for us to know that we don't have to do things in this world by ourselves. In fact, we're probably very limited on what we can do by ourselves. But walking hand in hand with God, hand in hand with Jesus, depending upon him for strength, praying to him, asking forgiveness, we can... Paul says, I can accomplish all things, all things. Even as a prisoner, Paul says, yes, even as a prisoner, and I can do it with a smile on my face and be happy that I was called upon to do it. That brings us to the end of chapter 1. Any questions, comments, thoughts, concerns you might want to share about that chapter? Maybe something that you saw there that I didn't see, that I didn't share with you? Feel free to bring that up at this time if you want to. If not, we're going to be getting ready for the young ones to come down. I think I saw a couple of them walking out there in the foyer earlier. And we'll start to look at chapter 2 next week. So we'll probably only get through, well, I'd like to think we'd get through all four chapters, but we may not. So read ahead, if you would, please. Read ahead. Thank you.